welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. In episodes two and three, I have discussed lifestyle factors such as being physically active and how this can be beneficial to our cognitive abilities and well-being as we age. In today's show, I'm talking about another lifestyle factor, diet and how it relates to our brain function and well-being. As you know, I'm not a nutritionist, but I have taken a personal interest in this topic as I have family members who've had issues with cardiovascular health. And this has led me to take a really good look at my own food and drink intake and how this ultimately affects our physical, mental and cognitive well-being. According to the World Health Organization, a healthy diet is one that is rich in fruits and vegetables, as well as a balanced amount of carbohydrates and fats. So when you do consume these in this balanced manner, then they work together to provide an optimum level of functioning for our body. Nutrients are necessary for our body to move smoothly and for our brain to work efficiently. Personally, I really like this in the form of a diagram. So I have added a link in the show notes to show this in a nice graph and it includes the Eat Well Guide, which I currently have on my fridge. Although a balanced diet is achievable, Many of us still tend towards the less healthy options, such as the so-called Western diet, which consists of high levels of saturated fat and refined carbohydrates. This diet dramatically affects a person's body mass index, or BMI, which is used by the World Health Organization to assess whether your weight is in a healthy range. Although it's not a perfect measure, your BMI is a good indicator of your health and it's calculated by combining a person's height and weight to form a measure that can help predict your risk of developing disease. As I know it will be of interest to many of you, I've put a link to a BMI calculator in the show notes. However, as discussed in an article about BMI published in Nutrition Today by the author Frank Nuttall, it's become apparent that BMI is a rather poor indicator of the percent of body fat and it also doesn't capture information on the mass of fat in different body sites. And in terms of certain diseases, this is actually really important. But for now, BMI is the most widely used indicator of a person's health. Another useful measure is waist circumference, which in some cases, such as type 2 diabetes in women and in cardiovascular disease, it's actually better than BMI as a predictor of overall health. And I'll be discussing type 2 diabetes and cognition later in the show with Dr. Matthew Hughes. So why do so many of us still prefer foods that are within the Western diet, which when we consume them in large quantities, we kind of know that it's going to lead to potential obesity? Well, possible answers to this question include being genetically predisposed to overeating. This notion has recently received a lot of interest and researchers have found that certain variants of the fat mass and obesity associated or FTO gene appear to be correlated with obesity in humans. It's suggested that it influences food intake as well as food choice rather than energy expenditure. Another reason is that foods high in saturated fat and refined carbohydrates are highly rewarding to our brain. In particular, parts of the brain called the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala, regions that are essential for processing and seeking rewards. And these are highly active when we consume the so-called Western diet. 
Neuroimaging studies have linked these areas with predicting weight gain in adulthood and giving into food temptations in daily life. Also, the volumes of these brain areas have been found to be positively associated with the body mass index in adults. So this suggests that by having a larger nucleus accumbens, it may lead to greater temptation to eat less healthy foods. Those that are particularly at risk of eating junk food are children and adolescents. This topic is discussed in a fascinating study by Christina Rapuana and colleagues who investigated children that are genetically at risk for obesity. The researchers found that children with the FTO gene exhibited stronger reward-related responses to real-world food cues, so in other words, food advertisements. And they found that the nucleus accumbens, the brain region we just discussed early in the podcast and now know is linked to reward processing, was highly active in these children. As stated by Rapuano, the nucleus accumbens is larger in children at risk of obesity and taken together, these findings do offer a potential explanation for how genetic risk for obesity may predispose individuals to engage in unhealthy eating behaviours and may inform us of how to develop strategies and to aid in the intervention of unhealthy eating. So, The next time you see an advertisement on the TV, then be aware that for some people, this could actually be more enticing than it is for others, dependent on whether they have the FTO gene or not. The children in the study by Christina Rapuano and colleagues were 9 to 12 years old, but adolescents are also at risk of developing unhealthy eating habits, according to a recent study by Amy Reichelt. The prefrontal cortex of the brain is linked to behavioral control and self-regulation and the brain of an adolescent has yet to mature, something that usually occurs in our early 20s. And in adolescence, it's flooded with the neurotransmitter or the chemical messenger dopamine. If you're a little bit unsure about what I'm talking about in terms of neurotransmitters, then please listen to episode one of the Everyday Neuro podcast series, as I can give you a lot more information in that. As stated by Dr. Reichelt, dopamine is involved in tuning the brain to rapidly learn about rewards and regulating aspects of neuroplasticity. Amy states that adolescence is proposed to represent a period of vulnerability towards reward-driven behaviours, such as in the consumption of highly desirable fat and high-sugar diets. This is reflected in the increasing prevalence of obesity in children and adolescents, as they are at the greatest risk of consuming junk food. If you'd like to know more about what Amy Reichelt found, then please see the article in the show notes. Another reason many of us turn to sweet and fatty foods is that it's actually a learned behavior. As observed by B.F. Skinner in the 1930s, operant conditioning is a method of learning that occurs through rewards and punishments for certain behaviors. Through operant conditioning, an individual makes an association with a particular behavior and its consequence. So as children, we may have been given sweet or fatty foods as a reward for good behavior. And over time, this forms the learnt association. 
As we get older, although we're not necessarily aware of it, we choose sweet and fatty foods as they are psychologically linked to good feelings. And if we understand this, then it's really good because it helps us to change our potentially undesirable behavior. A good tip is to monitor your behavior for seven days and establish when you may choose to eat a sweet treat. Often it's when you're tired or you feel like comfort. By bringing attention to this behavior, it allows you to have greater self-awareness and this in its very essence can be beneficial to changing your diet and your unhealthy food intake. The issue with sugar is that we have receptors in the brain that become highly active when we consume it. But over time, the brain habituates or gets used to these amounts. And in order to get the same activation or buzz that we got initially, we then have to eat even more of the sugary treats. So as you can imagine, over time, if not managed properly, this can have negative consequences for a person's health. If you are concerned about your consumption of unhealthy food, then monitor your intake. A food diary is a positive way to become aware of your eating habits so that changes can be made. Another learnt behaviour is the association we may have formed between alcohol and the feeling of relaxation and a reduction in stress. When drunk in moderation, alcohol can be a mood modifier and indeed our tendency to become more sociable is due to the effect of GABA, G-A-B-A, an inhibitory neurotransmitter that is activated by the consumption of alcohol. It helps us to calm down and makes us feel less stressed. When alcohol is consumed in moderation, it can have positive effects on our cognition and has been found to be beneficial to cognitive longevity as published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by Erin Richard and colleagues. However, as many of us have experienced, alcohol when consumed in excessive amounts has detrimental effects on our frontal lobes and can lead us to make poor decisions and lose our ability to self-monitor our behaviour. It often lowers our levels of empathy, which leads to self-serving behaviours. It also has an effect on our cerebellum and brainstem, which can affect our balance and in severe cases, our breathing and heart function. The amount of alcohol required to affect cognition differs between individuals and for those people who drink very minimally or drink on an empty stomach, even one unit of alcohol can have pretty substantial effects. In severe cases of prolonged alcohol consumption, there can be a deficiency in the enzyme thiamine. This can be due to inadequate dietary intake, a malabsorption of thiamine from the gastrointestinal tract, and also an impairment in the way that thiamine is utilized by the cells. The result on cognition is a problem with memory, and it creates an amnestic disorder called Korsakoff syndrome. However, for the most part, when alcohol is drunk in a moderate fashion, it can bring a lot of enjoyment and can be beneficial to cognition. So far, we've talked about alcohol, which can have a sedatory as well as a stimulating effect on our central nervous system. But what about another stimulant, caffeine? The good news for coffee drinkers is that caffeine, most often in the form of coffee, is beneficial to cognition, in particular memory and attention. However, one thing that may be important for you to know is that for it to be of benefit, it's a good idea not to overconsume. As we've discussed with sugar, the more caffeine that you consume, the more you will need to see the same beneficial effect on your cognition. 
Although caffeine in the short term can be beneficial to cognition, if you overconsume caffeine in any form, in the long term it can have a negative impact on your cardiovascular system. If you're wondering how much is too much, then this is widely under debate. For an excellent review of the effects of caffeine on cognition, I've included an article by Simone Capaletti and colleagues in the show notes. For the most part, drinking two or three cups of coffee a day is not going to have negative effects on your health and in fact will probably benefit you cognitively. However, it's not just the drinking of caffeine to stimulate the brain that makes it such an enduring activity. It's also because we team it or associate it with reward. I know that I set my goal and then once I've reached it, I will often think to myself, okay, it's time for a nice cup of tea because I associate this with relaxation. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to find that coffee is the second most popular drink in the world with the first belonging to water. Personally, I really like water and it will be my go-to when I want to quench a thirst. I've been told by friends as well as dietitians that it's actually beneficial to drink lemon water in the morning rather than a tea or coffee as it starts the digestive system and aids our provision of energy. I also have been told to drink at least two or three litres of water a day and this is again supposed to help with energy levels and digestion. Now as a neuroscientist knowing that there is this strong link between the gut and the brain I thought that seeing as there's such a beneficial effect of water on our digestive system that there must also be a hugely beneficial effect of consuming water and our cognition. I was really surprised that I couldn't find many articles that actually showed a beneficial effect between drinking water and enhancing our cognitive abilities. The studies that I did find usually had groups of people who were in extreme conditions. So for example, there were groups of military personnel who were sleep deprived and working in hot arid conditions and also those that had been put through rigorous extreme exercise protocols. Even in these circumstances, there wasn't a beneficial effect of water, which makes us think, where exactly does this belief that it enhances our cognition come from? Perhaps one of the main areas are from the bottled water manufacturers advertising campaigns. There is no doubt that water is essential for a healthy body and digestive system as well as physical performance but perhaps next time you go for that additional coffee maybe don't feel quite so guilty as I couldn't find literature to support the idea that water is better than caffeine on helping our cognition. Rather it seems that the literature suggests that the best thing we can do for our cognition is to stay active and have a balanced healthy diet. Although awareness of the benefits of a healthy diet is on the increase, many people continue to overconsume refined carbohydrates and saturated fats, which means that obesity levels continue to rise. This, combined with increasing age and a sedentary lifestyle, has led to a rise in type 2 diabetes. 
In a report by the Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute, they found that by looking at the data, it could be that by eliminating obesity from the population, it could actually potentially reduce the incidence of type 2 diabetes by over 40%. Unfortunately, type 2 diabetes is on the rise, and one of the areas that the condition affects is cognitive abilities. To explain this in more detail, I have been joined by the neuroscientist psychologist Dr. Matthew Hughes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you for the invitation. So Matt, can you tell us what areas of cognition are most affected by type 2 diabetes? Yes, certainly. When we've looked at people with type 2 diabetes, the areas they show up as having impairments in cognition or weaknesses are those of attention, working memory and speed of information processing. Could you tell us a little bit more about each of those, please? Attention is really the general ability to concentrate on information. Working memory is when you're holding information in your mind and processing it. So an example would be calculating change at a checkout. And speed of information processing is at the rate at which people are able to take in information and think about things. So it's how quickly they're thinking. Thank you, Matt. For those of you who do want to know a little bit more about working memory and attention, then please listen to episode five of the Everyday Neuro podcast series as I go through this in quite a lot of detail and even do a working memory task. So Matt, does the level of severity of type 2 diabetes affect these abilities more or less? We have seen some correlations between some of the biological parameters. So obviously we're looking at blood sugar control. The thing that probably affects cognition the most is episodes of hypoglycemia. That's actually if people have had too much medication and their blood sugar gets too low. Also, we've noticed hyperglycemia can be an issue as well, and that's when there's chronically high levels of blood sugar. So it's very important for people with type 2 diabetes to try to optimise blood sugar level control. So management of the condition is the best way to reduce the effects on cognition, Matt? Absolutely. We notice that people have the illness for about seven years before it's diagnosed. It's often diagnosed with other complications because the high blood sugar levels affects the micro and macrovascular structures in the body. So people with diabetes can be prone to having strokes, heart conditions or peripheral neuropathy or damage to the very small blood vessels in the eye, which is known as retinopathy. So as much as the blood sugar levels can be controlled, these secondary complications can equally be controlled. What would your advice be for someone with type 2 diabetes to help manage with their cognitive abilities? It'd be useful for people with type 2 diabetes to try to limit distractions in an environment when they're working on things, so not have a radio or noise playing in the background. Also, being able to modify the speed of tasks. You can't always slow things down, but if you get a chance to go over things that are important, doing activities when you're fresh or activities which have any cognitive demand, doing them when you're feeling fresh. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for highlighting the cognitive issues that are associated with type 2 diabetes. You're welcome. My pleasure. Of course, the causes of type 2 diabetes include genetic and family risk factors, as well as modifiable lifestyle risk factors that include obesity. For more information on diabetes, please see the show notes. Before I end the podcast, I wanted to say that it's really important to make a distinction between the acute and chronic factors affecting cognition, 
We've been discussing some acute factors and their effects, but some chronic factors such as long-term obesity may increase the risk for hypertension, which is high blood pressure, and other cardiovascular risk factors associated with heart disease and stroke. So it's really important to have a long-term perspective in terms of optimizing health and well-being over time and reducing the lifetime risk of these conditions. So that's it from me. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Everyday Neuro. I hope you have enjoyed hearing about some of the effects of diet on cognition. And as always, please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours. And I hope you can join me again for another episode of the Everyday Neuro podcast series. Take care.